to see you here this morning. Looks like we have a number of people away. I heard a few folks are on vacation, but it is June. <laughs> it does start up the summer. We have some people filling in for us, and uh, appreciate that. We're we're stumbling on a few things with the sound. We we haven't figured out how to get this this one off yet, have we? If you'll excuse me for just a minute, I'm just going to go over here and do something very unprofessional, and just unplug that so we don't have that echo. I think that will take care of it. <laughs> I can't hear it exactly. But we have a number of people that, that function in ministries, and hardly ever are they gone. And then once in a while, you know, they, they do go somewhere. And it's nice to have someone that you can plug in. My son's been back here the last couple of weeks. He's been just plugging in for different people and, uh, and filling in wonderfully because it's, it's tough to do it when you're not doing it on an every week basis. But we do appreciate that. Another thing that is new for us, and, and uh, do help us out with that, we want to make sure that you are comfortable. We do have a new thermostat. It's been in play for a little while now. Uh, we had the heater system set up with it pretty good. But this is our first day. We really need air conditioning. So it is running. If it uh, gets to be too hot or too cold, you let us know because we think the thermostat setting might be a little bit different from the old one, and we don't want to make it too cold or too hot for, for anyone. We try and keep it in that that. Uh, Nice, comfortable range. We know we can't be comfortable for everyone, but we try and get to at least most. So if you have a comment about how the AC or heat is ever working, make sure you let Ray or one of the ushers know, and they know, know what to do from there. We're going to be over in the book of First Kings here today. There's a story about Einstein, Albert Einstein, and his uh, driver. Um, of course, everybody knows Albert Einstein, very smart man, very uh, ingenious man, just, you know, began to think of all kinds of principles thought outside the boxes, they say. Well, he was um, led to discover the uh, atomic bomb and, you know, EM, E equals MC squared and all those fun formulas we had in the school. Well, one day Albert saw his driver in the garage. He had a driver who would drive him to the different places that he would go. And he was conducting the lecture himself. So... Well, of course, Albert always conducts the, the lectures, and the driver would take him on over there. Um, story went, though, that Albert was uh, impressed with his driver at one time and, and just liked some of the things he did. So he asked the driver, he said, can I drive today? He asked, and he said, well, sure, if you want to. And so Albert Einstein drove the car to the lecture. And the, uh, the guy who usually drove, he sat in the back. And so when they pulled up to the lecture hall, of course, they opened the door up for the person in the back seat because they figured that was Albert Einstein. And so out came the driver from the back seat, and they went into the, the place that way, and, and they had talked about it on the way. They thought, you know, hey, but if you give this lecture, you've heard it given, given it so many times, hey, but if you give the lecture. And so the driver came out of the back seat, like he was Albert Einstein, and prepared to give the lecture. And he gave the lecture and gave it flawlessly, gave it just like Albert Einstein would give the lecture. Then the people were impressed with the things that came out of this. They thought it was Albert Einstein. And so at the end of it, they had a question and, and, and answer. And this one person, they asked the question, and the driver had no idea how to answer it because he's not Albert Einstein. He just knew how to give the lecture. And he did such a great job. You know, people had questions. And so they, he asked the question, and the, the driver pondered the question for just a little while. And he says, that question is so simple to answer. I'm going to let my driver do it. And Albert Einstein got up and answered the question. Sometimes we have questions about things that are going on in life, and we are asking the wrong person. We've asked the wrong, the wrong one. We think we ask someone who, has a, who seems to have a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge, but we've asked the wrong person. When you ask the wrong person, you will get the wrong response. We've been talking the last number of weeks about making sure our heart was right, and we saw the greatest enemy we have about our heart is pride. That pride has a way of working itself in. We said the path of pride was that pride comes in and it first comes in as a... And as you begin to entertain that thought, meditate on that thought, think on that thought for a while, it begins to get from your thought down into your heart. When it gets down into your heart, it begins to uh, affect your actions and impact, influence. We gave you the acronym that. Thoughts, heart, actions, talk. That's how pride will get in. But when pride gets into us, it has an effect upon us. And you can tell when people are in pride because of their actions and their talk. Their words will give them away. 
their words tell you this person is caught up in pride. We, we can tell what's in a heart of a person by the words that they utter, by the actions that they do. We can tell. The Bible tells us. And we've gone through the Word of God, and we looked at a number of people who were caught up in pride and problems they had. And just because you serve God does not mean you are not in pride. We looked at that one week. We just spent some, some time on it. We call it the cloak of service. Sometimes people think, because I am serving God in a capacity, I'm not in pride. And that's wrong. How many people are in the Word of God who serve God caught up in pride? Samson? Hophni and Phineas. A number of uh, people under Moses had some pride issues. And, uh, and you saw it in their actions. And so we spent some time on that. It's an it's a important thing for us to get down. Because when pride comes in, it hardens our heart. And what's the word, the word of God say about a hard heart? It makes us resistant to correction. When pride comes in, it makes us resistant to correction. And God corrects those whom he loves. He corrects those whom he loves. We've got to make sure that we keep our heart right. Because when pride comes in, it hardens our heart. And God doesn't like a hard heart. He wants us to have soft hearts. How many times have we heard in the Word of God, they hardened their heart and they didn't receive the things that God has. They didn't receive the correction that God has. Because pride will make you resistant to it. Pride will make you become unteachable, unthankful, and unaccountable. Those three things are important to understand. People in pride will become unteachable, unthankful, and unaccountable. They're accountable to no one. As soon as they disagree with the person they're supposed to be under, they, f- they fly the coop. They go somewhere else. I remember uh, down, in, uh, down at school, uh, after we graduated, there was a, a number of folks who graduated and got off in some teaching. And Brother Hagen corrected him, called him in his office, said, I'm writing this book. It's to correct a lot of this uh, 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 teaching that's going around on money. Because he said some of the things that's going on with money have gotten into covetousness. And, and people are too much into possessions. He said, I wrote this book. It's called The Midas Touch. And this is what I said in it. And he corrected a lot of them. And many of those he called to the room who were supposed to be under him got up and left and broke all contact with Raymond from there on out. Were they really submitted? No. See, submission never kicks in until you, uh, until you don't agree with someone that's over you. When Moses was called by God and says, Moses, I want you to go and become the deliverer. What did Moses say? No. No. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it. And by the end of the, the session there at the burning bush, what did Moses do? He went. He was in disagreement, but he was submitted to God, and he eventually went. When Jesus went to the garden, his, his thought was, I don't really want to do this, but I will if we need to. He was submitted to God. You never test submission until something happens you don't like. That's when you really test it. While we looked at the reactions that give away our heart's condition in pride, people that are in pride, they blame other people. People that are in pride blame other people. It's always someone else's fault. And we looked at that, uh, a few examples of that. People are always blaming other folks. I think last week we were looking at some of those things. False humility will blame others, or, or blame themselves, I'm sorry. Pride will blame others. People in false humility will blame themselves. They blame themselves for everything. The humble will go to the Word and seek the Lord's counsel before they utter a word or entertain a thought. That's the humble. False people and false humility, everything is their fault. Now, last week we were looking at blame. You've got to find out who's to blame. Just because you have a company and something goes wrong in the company, just because you fire people doesn't mean you fix the problem. You can fire anybody you want to. If you don't fix the problem, if you don't find out what is the cause, what is to blame, if you don't find that out, you're not going to fix the problem. Just we'd use the example of the car. Remember that? If you take your car to the repair shop and they say you need a new transmission, and you know that's, that costs a lot of money, and you fix the transmission and you get the car back and it's still doing the same thing it was doing before, how many of you are happy? 
I mean, something got blamed, something got fired, and something got replaced. But it wasn't necessary. And you still have the same problem with your car. You're just, what, $3,000 poorer? That's not good. You want to find out what is to blame. When people are in false humility, the blame does not get assessed to the right thing. When people who are in pride, the blame does not get assessed to the right thing. It's put on other people. People who are humble will go to God and God says, that's the blame. Fix it. When Joshua went before God and they missed God at Ai, where they lost the battle, God says, what's wrong? And God says, it's here. Fix it. They went right to the problem and they fixed it and they went out and they won the battle. We've got to know what the problem is. How many of you want to know what the problem is? We don't want to just blame people. We want to find out what's the problem. If you find out what the problem is, you can fix it. People that are in pride resist getting to the crux of the problem. So do people who are in false humility. You need to be humble. You need to accept blame where it needs to come and pass blame where it needs to go. You cannot keep protecting the people around you. Can't do it. You're not helping you. You're not helping them. You're not helping God. You're actually getting in the way. Don't do it. We said if, if the word of God that we learn, this is the last part of the review, but if the word of God that we learn, how many of you believe you're learning the word of God every day? Go to the word, we learn, we read, we study, we're learning to God. If the word of God you learn does not affect, does not have an effect upon, remember the four things? Your words, your actions, your responses, and your thoughts. Then you may be nothing more than a wart on the body of Christ. The Word of God needs to get in you. It needs to affect your words, your actions, your reactions, and your thoughts. W-A-R-T. If not, you may be nothing more than a wart on the body of Christ. Now you're on the body of Christ. <laughs> you're in the body of Christ. I'm not saying whether you know, you're saved or unsaved. That's for God to decide. But how many of you want to be a functioning part? I mean, does a wart have a functioning part in the body? No, we generally want to remove them. They're unsightly. They don't function. They, we, don't, we don't like them. We want to get rid of them. Don't be a wart in the body of Christ. Let the Word of God that come in and affect your words, your actions, your reactions, and your thoughts. Let that go on. All right, we're going to get into First Kings today. We're going to look at a story, a uh, real important one, one, one that we know. We've gone over it before. But before we do that, I just want to give you some types of anger. Remember last week? Oh, I didn't write this in your outline. I apologize for that. If uh, we have some other ones from the week before, we had um, uh, a number of things that we were looking at, and I didn't copy all those over into, into my notes to, um, to do that. But we had a number of things we were looking at, and we broke them down into, uh, I believe, six. And we covered two last week. We're covering uh, one of them today, and that's just the area of anger. So if anyone has last week's outline and can pass that up to me, if you've got some things on it filled out, that would uh, be helpful. I'll, I'll give it to the folks that are not here. I didn't copy that over for me at all. That wasn't, uh, wasn't very good. Anyway, there are types of anger. How many of you all know just because you get angry doesn't mean it's always the same? There's different kinds of anger. Uh, there's angry. There's people that get angry at others. And people who are in pride will very often get angry at others. What they did to me, what they don't do for me, what they do to others, and what they won't do for others. Those are some of the things we get mad at. We get angry. If we're going to get angry at other people, we get angry a lot of times for what they did to me. How many have ever been angry at someone else because of what they did to you? How many have ever been angry at someone else because of what they don't do for you? <laughs> How many have ever been angry at somebody else because of what they did to other people? You ever see that? You see, I mean, they didn't do it to you. They did it to someone else, and you got angry. I'll give you a good uh, case in point. That how many? Thank you. How many have ever watched a movie, and the villain does something to the to the good guy, the good gal in the in the movie? How many of you are mad? I mean, a good movie will get you mad at the villain. You're angry at the villain. You get mad at that, and and uh, we also get mad at what they don't do for others. You know, you're watching a romantic comedy or something like that in a movie, and the guy is not doing some things for the girl that he should be doing. How many gets you mad? Why is he not doing that? He, sh he should be doing that. Why is he doing this? He, he shouldn't be doing that. You get mad. You get angry at those kind of things. So we listed these things as the actions of pride. The last time we looked at was blame. 
that one of the actions of pride is that people blame others for everything. The other thing they do is they judge. People in pride will judge others constantly. They blame, they judge. Here we're on number three, actions of pride, and that is anger. Thank you very much. We're going to get into the rest of those things as the weeks go on here. But this one we're just going to take on the, the one side, the anger side. I can get angry at myself for what I did. How many have ever been angry at yourself for what you did? Shouldn't have done that. Oh, I can't believe I did that. You're mad at yourself because of what you did. <laughs> You're also mad at yourself for what you didn't do. Oh, I should have gotten that done. Oh, I can't believe I didn't get that done. I knew I was supposed to do it. I knew I needed to do it. I didn't do it. And you get mad at yourself for what you didn't do. These are the things that we, we get mad at. Now, prideful people get angry at others, not themselves. Do you know anyone in your circle of people who's always angry at other people, but never angry at themselves? They never see that they did anything wrong. Always mad at someone else. What's that person showing you? I'm in pride. That's what they're showing. I'm in pride. I'm always mad at other people. Never mad at myself. People who have that false humility going on, they get angry at themselves, but not others. You can tell persons in false humility, they're always mad at themselves. Something goes wrong. Oh, I probably did it. Can't believe I did. Oh, I can't believe I did. No, it wasn't your fault. It was someone else's. No, I'm sure it came down to me. It's false humility. That's not good either. It's a, it's a ditch on the other side of the road. Both, put this in your outline for you, both are an emotional anger. They're based on emotion. That's all that it is. Now, the humble get angry and do not sin. Isn't that what the Word of God says? Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. The humble, they get angry and do not sin at themselves or others. A humble person can get angry at themselves for what they did, and they can get angry at others for what they did. Has God ever been angry at other people? <laughs> did Moses ever get angry at other people? Did the prophets ever get angry at other people? Did Jesus in his ministry on this earth ever get angry at other people? Did Paul ever get angry with other people? Did Peter ever get angry at other people? Yeah. Were they ever rebuked for the anger that we saw in the word of God? No, they were, their anger was justified. It was right. God was angry. They were angry. If God gets angry at a thing, how many know it's good for you to get angry at it? If you are going to have the heart of God and God gets mad, God gets angry at a thing, there's nothing wrong with you getting angry at it. Is there? Don't we follow his example? If God is angry at something and you just say, oh, I don't know why you're upset, God. <laughs> that doesn't bother me at all. Do we have the heart of God? We do not. What makes God angry ought to make us angry. Does God get angry when people persecute his people? Kill his people? He gets angry. You should get angry at that too. That's all right. Does God get angry when people do things to children? He gets angry at that, doesn't he? It's okay for you to get angry at it as well. Does God take action when people do this? Uh-huh. He does. If God tells you to take some action, you ought to do it as well. These are some things that you can, you can do. Now, the others are an emotional anger. The humble don't follow after an emotional anger. They follow after a principled anger. A principled anger. It's a principle that has been broken. And they look to get the principle restored. You shouldn't do that to kids. You shouldn't do that to the defenseless. You shouldn't do that to, the, to these folks over here. Those are believers. Those are God's children. That's not right. Why are you withholding food? Why are you withholding? We get angry at those kind of things. It's a principled anger. It's not an emotional one. It's real hard for some people to get out of the emotional realm and into the principled realm, but that's where we ought to be. Now, you may get your emotions involved in it as well, but it's primarily a principled one. The Word of God, we've, we've gone through Revelations... We're just about finished reading that in our, in our study as Ethel was commenting on. But we've been uh, reading through the Bible. And you look at, if, if you remember when we went through this in, in uh, 
in a, the study that we did of it, there's different words that God uses for wrath. And there's times in the book of Revelation where God is no longer using a word that means a settled, he's angry, but a settled anger. He's using one that says he is upset. He is greatly angry. He is involved in this anger. And that kind of anger, that kind of wrath is poured out in the tribulation period. They will see an angry side of God they have never seen before. So it's a principled anger that the humble get into. When principles are violated, not when emotions are stirred up. That's when they, they get angry. They look to restore principles, not appease emotions. This is what the humble do. This is what God does. God looks to restore principles, not appease emotions. That's why when we repent before God, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because it's not an emotional anger. It's a principled one. We look at ourselves and we say, my emotions are not restored. If my emotions are not restored, maybe God's aren't and maybe God is still upset with me. God does not get angry at us with an emotional anger. He gets angry at us with a principled anger. And he looks to restore the principles. And once the principles are restored, we're back in fellowship. That's the kind of anger he wants us to follow. Anger should be accompanied by words of correction to enact positive change. Anger should be accompanied by words of correction to enact positive change. That's what needs to happen. And that's what God does. When he gets angry, words of correction come from God to enact positive change, to get those principles restored so we can get back into that area of fellowship and get going on with God. That's what needs to happen with us as well. Here are some examples of the Scripture, and you have a lot more that you can think of and write in here. I'm just giving you a handful of them. Cain got angry at Abel and God. Why did he get angry at God? Because God didn't accept his sacrifice. Why did he get angry at Abel? Because God accepted his. That is all. It's an emotional anger. There's no principles that were violated there. Saul got angry at Samuel, David, and God. Why? His feelings were hurt. He, Saul's the one who violated the principles, but he got mad at Samuel. He got mad at David. He got mad at God. Samson got mad at everyone not named Samson. <laughs> Isn't that right? He got mad at his parents. He got mad at his girlfriends. He got mad at Philistines. He got mad at the Jews. He got mad at everyone. If you weren't named Samson, he's probably mad at you at some point in his life. He's been probably mad at you. And again, it's an emotional, it's not a principled one. And there's more examples you can go over. But we're going to take a look at one here today. Jeroboam, a guy that you all know pretty well. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. Here's the promise that God gave to Jeroboam. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. I want you to see what the word that God classifies Jeroboam as. He says he rebelled against the king. I don't know about you, but that doesn't quite sound real good. Does it sound good to you? Have you ever read this and wondered, this doesn't sound right. God does not cause him to rebel against the king the Word of God says this is what caused him to rebel. It's his reaction to what happens. So, and this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man of Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer all over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field, and Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourselves ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. And he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David for the sake of my, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. And I have not walked in my ways to do what is right in the eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. Now, most of us can do math, and we know that 12 minus 10 is 2. 
But according to God's math, 12 minus 10 is 1. Now, who here wants to say God's wrong? I'm not telling God he's wrong. But most of us have been brought up, if you tap 12 tribes and you take 10 tribes away and give them over here, you are left with two tribes. So there's been a couple of uh, thoughts about this. One was that Benjamin, one of the tribes, was swallowed up in the tribe of Judah and just kind of went along with it. And there's a number of things that happened in the history where Benjamin had been attacked by the children of Judah because they had uh, protected some sexual activity that had gone on there that was not good. Uh, most of the folks today want to pull that area of scripture out because it's dealing with homosexuality. And uh, Benjamin was judged for it, and they went out there and they killed all the men. All of them were killed because they wanted to protect them. And so they, they anyway worked out a way for Benjamin to con- maintain a tribe. But some people look at that as the reason that that tribe was not mentioned because Benjamin went along with, with Judah into this. The other thing that could be is Levi because Levi does not go into ten. Levi's purpose is to be the priest at Jerusalem. I kind of like this theory a whole lot better, this, this, this thinking a lot, a lot more. If, if you're going to ask me which way, I, this is the way I go. I think that this, it's a Levi, the tribe of Levi. He does not give them to anyone. They are gods. God even said that to him. He says, Levi, you're mine. I am your inheritance. So to me, the, 12th, the, the missing tribe is Levi. And he left that with Judah because in Judah is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a place where the temple and all that was going to be going on. So it, that's my thought on the whole thing. And other people can disagree with that, and that's fine. Um, we'll wait till we get to heaven to find out that I'm right. <laughs> it, it doesn't really affect anything else in the story. But anyway, you're, it'll, it'll hang up. You're 10, 1, that's 11. It, it'll mess you up. So we just wanted to address that and get that out of the way. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time that Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem. The prophet Ahijah, the Shilohim, oh, I'm sorry, we went over that part of it. Uh, so we got the 10 pieces. He's got 10 pieces of this cloth. He's got that in tow. And he's, he's given them this, these 10 pieces. And he says, I'm leaving some over here for, for David. The house of David, I promise that they're going to be an eternal house. I'm going to leave that with them. Verse 34, however, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of the, his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. So his heart had a desire there. His heart had a desire for this to go on. And and that desire was probably put in there by God. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. So this is what caused him to rebel. He says, well, I, I got ten tribes. God gave me ten tribes. Now, God didn't tell him to rebel. Remember, Under Saul's reign, God made a similar promise to David. David doesn't rebel against Saul. In fact, he even bypasses a couple opportunities to kill him. He doesn't rebel. But for Jeroboam, it caused him to rebel. That's not what God had told him to do, but that's what he did. Now we see Solomon's reaction to this. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So when David was called by God to be king in place of Saul, Saul got mad at David and wanted to kill him. When Jeroboam was called by God to take over the kingdom, instead of uh, Solomon, or Solomon's descendants, then uh, what happened? Solomon gets mad at Jeroboam wants to kill him. It seems to be a pattern, right? Where does that come from? Pride. Pride has a set a, a, a way that it causes people to react. And you can tell it. Is Solomon in pride? Oh, abs- and this isn't the only thing that it'll show you. But it's, it's not the, the only spot. It's one spot. But it's not the only one. He brought in foreign gods. He got in um, a thousand wives. 
Man had a problem. Now, if you want to go home and read 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 through 24, you're going to see the fulfillment of God transferring the kingdom. But we're not going to read that right now. You can read that at home if you want to. In verse 25, we're going to pick up there. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And also he went out from there and built Penuah. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, and the heart of this people will turn back to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me, go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Look at what it says. He said in his what? He said in his heart. What does that tell you? That the thought came in, and he entertained the thought. And then it got down into his heart. And he began to speak on this to himself. Have you ever said something to yourself? I need to do that tomorrow. Well, the thought comes in. You you think about it. It gets down on the inside of you. and says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm going to do that later on today. It, it, It comes in as a thought. It gets down in your heart. After it gets down in your heart, where does it go? Actions and your talk. It's going to affect both of that for, for him. We're going to see that whole pattern right here in, coming into play. So he says, this thought comes in. If I don't do something about the children of Israel going down to Jerusalem, where the king of David, or his sons are, then they're going to, they're going to eventually get rid of me. They're going to kill me. And they're going back to the house of David. We've got to do something about this. We've got to come up with another type of worship. Where do you think that thought came from? Well, the enemy of Israel right now is, is Satan. He's trying to bring this nation down. So if he can sow this thought into the leader, and the leader meditates on it and brings it into his heart, he's got some, some actions he can, he can work with here. Verse 28. Therefore the king asked advice, made two golden calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now we saw these golden calves appear under um, Moses. When he came down from the mountain. Remember who made them? Aaron. How did they get made? Well, he threw the gold in the pot. It melted and poof, out came the golden calf. It was amazing. You should have been here. It must have been God. <laughs> That's what he said. Uh-huh. I don't, Moses didn't buy it either. But we see these two golden calves come. Where do you think the golden calves originally came from? Did they just dream them up in the wilderness? No. They were gods they served in Egypt. These were gods they served in Egypt. Maybe they changed them around a little bit, but they resurrected it, brought them back to what they knew. Remember, they were serving idols when they were in Egypt. God had to work that out of them. So he asked advice. Who do you ask advice from? People. People. So people around him came up with this idea. If people around him came up with this idea of golden calves, what other caliber of people that are around him? Prideful people. If you are going to elevate yourself and your thoughts against the word of God, is that not not the definition of pride? So he asked prideful people. If you don't identify who's a prideful person in your life and not seek advice from them, you're going to be in trouble. You need to seek advice from people that are humble, not people that are prideful and not people that have a false sense of of humility. It's important. Otherwise, you were going to get wrong advice. These people gave advice contrary to the word of God. What was the word of God that Jeroboam got? If you follow after me all the days of your life, do as I command. I will make your house an enduring house as I made David's house. That's the word from God. But the thought comes in that God's word isn't going to work. Now, he got that word from a prophet. He also had it in the written word of God to, to stay after God and to not, not go after the, the foreign gods. That's what he had. He had as, as, as something in the word. But the prophet also came and delivered it to him. God will get a word to you. You can find one in his word, his written word, or sometimes he will send a messenger to deliver a word to you. But that word will always agree with Scripture. So it's imperative that you know Scripture so you know if it agrees. Otherwise, people can come on and sell you all kinds of stuff. Don't let them do that. 
So he built two golden calves. And he set one up in Bethel and the other and put it in Dan. Now this is all the way in the north and all the way in the south. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, which is a far way. He first says, you know, Jerusalem's too far for you to go, so go further, go over to Dan. Yeah, all right, it makes sense. He goes on. That's the, he doesn't stop there. He made shrines of the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. He made shrines on the high places and made priests of every class of people. Who were the priests supposed to come from? The tribe of Levi. Because when Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? Who stood up? The tribe of Levi. All the rest of them stood on the other side. And God said, because of that, you guys are going to be my priests. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificed the golden calves that he made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, and the month which he had devised in his own heart. What's his heart filled with? Pride. We know that from his actions. We know that from the things he's saying. Because he's... He, he doesn't just, these things don't just happen. The king has to say, build two golden calves. How do you say that? You're influenced by pride. How do you say, let's create a new feast day. Let's install priests from every class of people. How does that happen? You've got to say it. It's, inf- it's influencing his words. So he ordained feast, he offered sacrifices, and he installed priests from all the tribes of Israel. Is he supposed to do any of those things? The king is not supposed to ordain feasts. Who ordains feasts? God. No one else ordains feast days. God does. He gave them seven. Seven feasts. He offered sacrifices. Who's supposed to offer sacrifices? Priests. Who are the priests supposed to come from? Levi. And then he installed priests from all tribes. He installed them. You see what pride has done to this guy? And this, understand, this is a guy that God handpicked and said, this guy has got some stuff going on. But he let stuff get in, and it began to affect him. Have you ever seen someone in ministry doing things for God, serving God, serving God in a great capacity, who is filled with pride? Have you ever said, why did God pick that person? They are so full of pride. Why would God pick a person like that to operate healing through, to operate teaching the word through, to operate whatever kind of ministry it was? Have you ever said about that? Why does God use somebody who's so full of pride? Simple. When God picked them, they didn't have it. But when it came in, they began to be filled with pride. The thought comes in. God is doing so many miracles through you. You must be someone special. God is teaching so many great things through you. You must be someone special. You have such talent in music. You must be someone special. You are so good at what you do for God. God is lucky to have you on his team. That thought comes in. That thought didn't come in before. Remember when Saul was picked by God? And when, and when he was rebuked by the prophet, what did he say? Saul, when I picked you, you were small in your eyes. <laughs> what happened? He suddenly became big. Became big in his eyes. Don't look at people and say, why did God pick them? Look at people and say, why did they get off from where God was taking them? That's the question. See, sometimes we're just asking the wrong question. It's going in the wrong direction on, on that. Well, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and you shall, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high place, of the high places who burn incense on you. And the men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign to the same day, saying, This is a sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Now, I didn't emphasize this when we were reading it through, but maybe you'll remember. You can go back and check this out. Who built this altar? It said it right in Scripture. I kind of just read I meant to emphasize it for you. The Word of God says that Jeroboam built it, and this is the word that it uses, with his own hands. Now, why does the Word of God emphasize that Jeroboam built it with his own hands? Because when the sign comes that the altar is going to be split in two, he cannot 
blame anyone else for defective manufacturing. He cannot say, you guys, you built this wrong. You're in cahoots with, with this. I know it. You guys are setting me up. Jeroboam built it with his own hands. When it falls apart, he knows, I did not make it that way. And God came against the thing that he built with his own hands. Because if he didn't say that, we might just think Jeremiah or Jeroboam had it built. But he didn't say that. So he gave a sign. This is the sign. Now, if you're the prophet, if you're the prophet who's being sent here, you're being sent away. You've got to go a trip. Now, Israel is not huge. I think the comparison is it's about the size of New Jersey. But you've got to go from the south part of New Jersey up to, you know, somewhere around the central part, and you're walking. How many people want to make that trip walking to deliver this message? It's not long. Let's read it again. O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and the men's bones shall be burned on you. This is a sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the altars on it shall be poured out. That's it. That's the word. <laughs> That's not a long word, is it? But I'll tell you what, the power of it is incredible. What is the fear that Jeroboam gave into? That the children of Israel are going to go back to David. That's his fear. That's his thought. Where is he right now? Is he in Judah? No. He is in the territory that would be considered northern Israel. The ten tribes of the north. He built this altar not in Judah. He built this altar in the territory which he commands. And the prophet comes to him and says, A king, Josiah by name, will be born to the house of who? The house of David. What that's telling him is, You feared this thing coming upon you? I'm going to bring it about. I am going to raise up a child from David, and he's going to come into this territory, and he's going to have jurisdiction... And he's going to take your prophets and sacrifice them on your altar. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Because look at it. It's emphasizing. God, this is, this is amazing. God even predicts the guy's name. Now, there's a reason God can do that. It's not because he controls who's going to name who. It's because God is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. It does not mean that in a linear time he was before, he is now, and he will be it does not mean that. It means God is in touch with all points of time at the same time. He is not linear. When he says, I am the God of Abraham, remember him, his discourse on that? I am. He's not saying I was the God of Abraham who's dead now. He's saying I am, which means right now, at this moment, I still am the God of Abraham, which he, he still saw Abraham as alive. I always use this to, to emphasize the point. When was the book of Revelation written? How many can come up with a date? Maybe, you know, 79 A.D., 80, 80 somewhere in that, that neck of the woods. That would, that would be incorrect. That would be incorrect. When we have, when we just read Revelation, when is John writing Revelation? He tells you. It's all through the book. He's writing Revelation, the book of Revelation. He is writing during the tribulation. Right? He's, he is watching the events go on. God is not doing a, a stage rehearsal. John is watching the tribulation unfold and writing about it. Has the tribulation happened yet? No. But God calls him up into heaven and he sees it happen. God is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. He is in touch with all points of time at the same time. We can't even imagine that. Because we're linear. Yesterday is always yesterday. Today is today. Tomorrow is the future. It's always that way for us. Not for God. God can be in touch with your grandkids and, and say, oh, I already know their name. They, they, they just named them. Right here. He can see it. He sees all points of time. If you want to really blow people's minds away, tell them, we are reading a book that has not been written yet. 
Because technically, you are reading a book in the book of Revelation that has not been written yet. When it is written, you will be watching it. How many like that part in the, in the book of Revelation where John is about to write down what he saw and a voice says, don't write that. You will be there and see what he was not allowed to write. You are going to be in heaven watching the tribulation and John is going to be on display writing. I know what he, I know that book. <laughs> I know what he's writing. That's our God. That's an incredible God. But it's nothing to him. It's something to us. It's nothing to him. So it is no big deal for him to say this king in the future, Josiah by name, will do this. Because he's watching it happen. He is not command and control the future. He's narrating. He narrates the future because he's in touch with it. He's watching the future right now. He's already seen tomorrow. He's already seen it. Why would we be in, why would we be in fear when God has already seen it? You ought to meditate on that for a little bit. Expand your idea of God. Because many Christians think God is linear like we are. God is not linear. Events don't happen. Here, 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 and here. They're all going on at the same time. If you thought it was something for him to handle all the prayers of today, he handles and hears and deals with all the prayers ever. Ever. Past, present, and future at the same time. And he's not even breaking a sweat. Man, that is some kind of God. I'll tell you what. Verse 4. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he said, I have sinned. It's my fault. Blame me. He doesn't do that, does he? No. What's he do? He gets angry at the man who delivered the message, not the one guilty. What he's basically saying is, take that guy and fire him. Let's put somebody else in his place. He'll do a better job. Have we fixed the problem? Haven't even dealt with the problem. Then he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. A minute ago, he's going to kill him. Arrest him and kill him. Now, come on home. Let's have some dinner. Beside that, I'm not going to give you some dinner. I'm going to give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. It's been a little while since we covered this story, but the next uh, section deals with an older prophet who apparently was comfortable with what was going on there in Jeroboam and wasn't really standing up and doing anything about it. He came after this guy and talked him into coming back home. You know what he said to him? The Lord spoke to me after he spoke to you. He said, it's okay to come to my house. And the man listened to him. And if you want to find out what happened, go in the Bible and read it. We've covered it before. But we're looking at this here now. So we see with Jeroboam, he gets angry at other people. Does he get angry at himself? No. Is he to blame? No one else is to blame. Are the people who gave him counsel to blame? No. He's the guy who's in power. He's the guy who can give the order. He's the guy who gave the order. He's the guy who made the golden calves. He's the guy who built the altar. He's the guy who ordained the new feast. He's the guy who instituted the, the, the new, uh, uh, the, the, put the new feast days in, installed the new priest. He's the guy who did all these things. No one else. Who's to blame? Jeroboam. What should Jeroboam do? I have sinned. I should not have forsaken God. And he should have just restored and gone back. I don't know that God would have uh, fixed the problem for him. I think he still would have been on the out. But he could have at least done that. He didn't do it. He did not do it. 
Here's the principle. We put this in your outline. When did you get this down? Don't get angry and respond. This is real important to do because this is what this is where people get off. Don't get angry and respond to what you cannot change or are not to judge. Don't get angry and respond to what you cannot change or are not to judge. Now, you can get angry at stuff that you're not to judge or you're, you're, not, to res- you're not to change. You can get angry at it, but, but don't get angry and respond. That's the difference. Don't get angry and respond to things that you cannot change. Well, if you don't have jurisdiction over the thing, you can't change it, can you? So don't get angry over it. Don't get angry and respond, I should say. Some of those things may make you angry. But don't get angry and respond. Because what will your response be? Nothing useful. Nothing helpful. But if you are in a place where you can change, or if you are in a place where you need to judge, then you need to get angry and respond. There are some things that are put under your jurisdiction. There are some things that God has put for you to judge. Remember Paul writing in Corinthians? For what have we to do with judging those outside the church? Judge those in the church and purge the evil from among yourselves. Everybody wants to get hung up on Jesus' words. Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, he's not talking about all forms of judgment. Did Jesus pass judgment on the people who were selling in the temple? Did Jesus pass judgment on the Pharisees? Did he pass judgment on the scribes? Yeah. Surely he did. It's okay to pass judgment. I can't judge a person's heart, but if they reveal to me what their heart is, I can pass judgment on it because I have the Word of God. So, don't get angry and respond to what you cannot change or are not to judge. But there are some things you are called to judge and there are some things that you can change. You need to get angry at it and respond. If you messed up, you can change your life. You can change what you're doing. Get angry and respond. Change it. If you've got people that are under you, People that look up to you, you can help them. Put this in your outline for you too. Don't follow the example of people who yield to counsel that is against the Word of God. Don't follow the example of people or yield to counsel that is against the Word of God. Do you know people, you have people in your life that do things against the Word of God? Yeah, don't follow their example. Don't, you can't stand before God and say, well, he did it. It's not going to work. He's not gonna, he don't care that he did it. He says, I'm looking at you. Why did you do it? You knew better. You knew what my word said. Why did you do it? Well, they did it. No, you did it because you wanted to. Let's get the blame fixed to the right spot here. You did it because you thought it was a good idea. Don't follow the example of people or yield to counsel. Don't go asking people counsel who don't honor the Word of God. Because you're not going to get good response. If they don't honor the Word of God, they're going to be in pride, more than likely. They're going to give you a response out of that. Because when you have pride down on the inside of your heart, your words are influenced by pride. This is what Jeroboam did. He got counsel. Guys, tell me what I should do. I'm thinking that this might be a problem. How can we fix this? What they should have done, he should have had people around him that says, that can't be a problem because God gave you a promise. Remember that promise? You told us about it. God gave you a promise. He said, if you'll do as he commands all the days of your life, he will make your house an enduring house like the house of David. Don't do it. Stay following God. Send the people down to Jerusalem to sacrifice. They're going to come right back here because God said they would. That's what he should have been counseled. But he didn't have those kind of people around him. Don't follow the example of people or yield to counsel that is against the Word of God. Two things here. What God spoke to you. How many times has God spoken some things to you? Hopefully He has. Sometimes God will speak to you in a still small voice. Sometimes God will speak to you. His Word will come alive. Sometimes He will send a messenger. Sometimes the Word of prophecy, the the Word of knowledge, or Word of wisdom. God will send a, a message to you. That's the word that God spoke to you. There's also the, the words that God wrote 
to you. The ones he spoke and the ones he wrote. Those are the things that will govern your life. Now understand what he speaks to you through other people or through the Spirit is going to agree with what he wrote to you. But many people... Moses, what did God speak to him outside of the Word of God? Deliver my people. That's what God spoke to him. Deliver my people. Many people have, uh, have spoken about it. The, the words of God. Paul had a command from God. I want you to teach the Gentiles. I want you to, to teach them the, the way that, of the church. I don't know exactly how he, he phrased it there, but uh, Brother Hagin used to tell us his, his command. Go teach my people faith. That was, a, that was a word. And so he lived his life to do that. Brother Keith Moore used to always tell us that for uh, two, over two decades, his life was governed by the words, help Brother Hagin. That's something that God spoke to him. He had the written word of God. It didn't go against the written word of God. <laughs> but guess what God told him to do? Go help Brother Hagin. He said he did that up until the day he died. That's the word that God gave him to, to do. I think one time he were often he was doing more of his own ministries things, and um, and God says, you know, I never released you from that first first uh, set of orders I gave you. He says, no, you never did. He, he repented and went back. He said, Brother Higgins, is there anything we can do to help you? And so the, he, they got back on track and, and we're, we're doing some things. What has God said to do? And most of the time God speaks to us. It's short, three words, four words, five. Words. It's not long. But you've got to take those words that he speaks to you. You've got to hang on to them. You've got to keep doing them. What has God said to do? And for all of us, I mean, not everyone's going to go out and be a teacher of the word. Not everyone's going to go out and, and be music ministry. Not everyone's going to go out and, and, and be ministry in the way you see somebody else do it. Some of you are going to be, have, a, have a, uh, an effect where you work. Some of you have an effect in the area of serving God here. And, but God will tell you. I want you to do this. And you do that until God tells you something else. Remember, God, God talks about his family, about his church, like he does a, uh, an army. And we all know this from just, even if we haven't been in the army, we know this from the movies that we've watched about the army. If a private is told by a sergeant, man this post, when does he stop? After eight hours? When does he stop? When he is relieved. When someone is sent to relieve him or the order is relinquished. That's it. If he says, man, it's been 10 hours I've been standing here, man. I think that's long enough. And he goes back to the barracks and the sergeant comes in. Private! What are you doing here? Well, I thought I, I, I made the post, like you said. I was there 10 hours and I don't know, nothing was happening. No one came and relieved me. I just... Is the, is, the, is the sergeant happy? No. He's not happy. And neither will the private in a little while. And yet we get into the army of God and God says, I need you to do this. And what do we do? Oh, I did it for a week. Did it for a couple of weeks. Oh, I've already, I did that for a whole year, God. Hmm. How, long was, um, how long was Samuel called to be a prophet? But Jeremiah, how long was he called to be a prophet? How long was, how tough was Paul's ministry? You think that, he, that God could have said, you know what? This is more than I signed up for. No, God even said, I'm going to show him how many things he's going to suffer for my name. So he's going to see. He's going to do some suffering. And Paul was up to the challenge. We need to get that warrior mentality, folks. And when God gives us something to do, we do it. But we do it without pride getting in our heart. The devil wants to get pride in your heart, affect what you do, and get you removed from your place and what you're doing with God. It's a tactic he has used over and over. He did it here. He did it with Saul. I mean, we, we think about this. Saul could have been a great king. He had a son who would have made a fantastic king. As good as David was, I think Jonathan was better. Jonathan was outstanding character even more than David and David had a lot of character even more than David God was phenomenal what a guy in the wings and when word came to Jonathan that God's going to anoint David instead what does what what does he do 
but I want to be king. Doesn't do that. What's he do? It's great. I'm going to help you out. <laughs> I'm going to help you out. Uh, I'll do whatever's needed. He stepped out of the way because he does not have pride, nor was he in false humility. Jonathan was a humble man. Whatever God wanted to do, it's good with me. I'm a soldier in the army. God, you tell me where you want me to serve, I'll serve there. I'll do it. And that's what we need to do. God, I will serve wherever you want. I will serve as long as you want. And I will serve no matter what's going on around me. That's where we need to be. You let pride get in. Pride will stop you from serving. Pride will cut your endurance. Chop it right off. Don't let pride get in. How does it get in again? Through your thoughts. The enemy sows a thought. gets into your heart because you meditate on it. It begins to affect your actions and influence your talk. Don't let it get in. Don't let it get in. It will take you out of what God plans. God had big plans for Jeroboam. He had big plans for Saul. Both of them lost those things. He had big plans for Hophni and Phinehas. They lost those plans because of pride. How many people under Moses died because pride got in? They lost their place. One group, they weren't satisfied with the place they were doing. They thought they ought to be doing more. That's the voice of pride. Don't let pride get in. Oh, it's so important. We're going to go on to the next one here. But anger. Watch your anger. If you have an emotional anger, it's a symptom. Fix it before it fixes you. Principled anger. That's God. Not emotional anger. You shouldn't have anger based on those other things like we're talking about. Keep anger principle based. Get angry and respond when it's something that you can change or you can judge. You're in a place to judge it. If you're not, don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. Sometimes people come along and they bring, you know, minister so-and-so. They got off and they're doing these things. I'm not in a position to judge them. I don't give it a second thought. I don't need to teach against that, that brother or sister. I just need to teach you the Word of God. I'll teach you the Word of God. By listening to the Word of God, you can follow after what's right or what's wrong. It's up with, up with you. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. We thank you, Father, for your word that is our great guide. We thank you for the people that are in our life to give us good godly counsel and that you will bring in others. Help us to identify those that are around us that are in pride because they will lead us down a wrong road, a wrong path, a place that we do not need to go to. But, Father, you will help us. We thank you for the help that you give us. We thank you, Father, for you have called us to serve you. And that calling... It's all we need to focus on. Help us not to get distracted by all the things going on around us, but to simply focus on you. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today's the first Sunday of the month. Just barely squeezed that one in here, huh? The first of the month. It's the day that we have chosen. Not the day that the Bible has chosen. It's the day we've chosen. The Bible didn't choose a day. It just said do it. So we do it. First Sunday of the month, we remember, as Jesus told us, the night before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples in the upper room. And before the meal, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, my body that is broken for you. So often as you do this, remember what I've done. After the supper, he took the cup. He said, this represents my blood. Before supper and after supper. It's two completely different events. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed us clean, washed us of all sin. We stand before him blameless. If that is the only work of salvation, then there is no need for the body. But he broke the bread he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Because he knew we would have problems with it. That people would be adding to the blood of Jesus Christ when all we need is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what forgives us. That's what has forgiven, washed away our, our sin. But then there's the body. And upon his body was put our diseases, our pains. They were put upon him.
He bore them so that we don't have to. We need to stay renewed on that and understand salvation is just as real for healing as it is for sins. We are free from all those things because of what he did. Has everyone been served? As he said, Jesus took the bread. He said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Understand, when he went to the cross, he thought about each one of us. Each one. He did it for us. There's no reason, there's no excuse for why you were left off the list. You're on the list. (laughs) We are all included in that. Because sometimes we begin to think, well, I sinned too much. Well, I come up short now. No, it's not up to you. It's his body. His body that was broken for us. So we eat together, let's remember. It's what he did, not us. It brings healing for our bodies. At the end of supper, he took the cup. This represents the blood of the new covenant. The old covered up sin. His blood paid for it, washed it away. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We drink together. Let's remember the price he paid for us. He saw us as worth it. Let's see ourselves as worth it too. Let's drink together. Glory to God. Before we go, we have uh, praise reports. If you didn't write your praise report out, you have a little bit of time while we're giving off some of the other ones. We'd like to hear your praise report. What has God done for you this week? If you'd like to sit down, feel free. Go right on ahead. Is my wife around? Or is someone else going to read them off? Got them. Got them coming up. Anyone else? I know we had a couple that were in there early. Thank you. Come on. It's okay. We'll let you do it without your shoes. I got An energy... Oh, to accomplish to accomplish many delayed tasks this past week, and I have and I thank him um, that he will give me strength for that to continue in the future. I love it when God tells us uh, if you just ask him, he'll say, "We'll do this." Um, Phyllis says uh, she got our season and baseball. Oh, I see season's end baseball bill. Okay, so the end of the season bill for the baseball is $100 less than what they'd expect. She said, June 1st is the beginning um, of my push to grow. In you know, Phyllis has been doing a lot of um, uh, dieting and excited about the reports on a couple of days, uh, even to the point of wrapping it with an ace band. She says, I was sure the pain would be gone by today. And guess what? It's gone. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God for his for all of his promises and for healing. And Sharon, it's good to see you here today. Um, she says, I thank God for the quick recovery from my surgery and for everyone's prayers and support and all the delicious meals. Praise. Um, this is from Allie and Nikolai. They said that when Nikolai's overtime wasn't approved in time to make the check and the bills were due, a client of hers for her event planning business has paid her for the event beforehand, <laughs> which they usually never do. Um, and this is one from Susan from last week. You know, we prayed for her Aunt Ruth. Um, they were supposed to do emergency surgery last week, and I think many of you know she did go on to be with us. So her Aunt Ruth went home to be with the Lord last Sunday. Please pray for her family, especially if we lose a loved one. The ones that are left behind, they're not necessarily grieving for the one that's gone on, but grieving for the fact that they're no longer here to help us along the way and encourage us. So we just want to lift up. 